Hi, and welcome to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast looking at international politics from Berlin with me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gashburnett. Join us for an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. Hello and welcome back to Berlin Side Out for a special bonus episode on German geoeconomics and how Germany's trade model fits in with its values and its overall grand strategy for what it wants in foreign policy. I'm Aaron Gashburnett and together with my friend and co-host Benjamin Tallis, we're digging into a key question on this special bonus episode. What does the German public think about all this? And further pursuing this theme of geoeconomics and its link to geopolitics, we're delighted to welcome Jan Eichhorn to Berlin Side Out. Jan's a senior lecturer on social policy at the University of Edinburgh, and he's the research director with DEPART, with no E, and that's an independent think tank in Berlin, which uh, focuses on encouraging political participation and to engage social groups that are otherwise reached less frequently or with greater difficulty by politics and the political bubble of the kind that we are so often stuck in. And they have particular experience and expertise working on the participations of social groups that are politically underrepresented. Jan, it's a pleasure to see you again and welcome to Berlin Side Out. Thanks so much for having me. So we've been talking to some experts about this link between geopolitics and geoeconomics. Is that something that ordinary Germans care about, though? They wouldn't use that language. I think that's the important point. It's not how people talk about it. People are concerned about issues that directly connect. So it's issues that people care about. Um, but yeah, looking at them probably in a, in a different way. So what sort of issues do, you, do people care about when you're looking at this? So people are quite concerned of the role that Germany plays within basically international economic trade flows. Um, so they are concerned about the dependency um, that you know, Germany has in terms of resources from certain countries like, like China. Um, they are concerned also um, about how Germany is positioned vis-a-vis -vis large international corporations um, like Amazon, um, social media corporations and so on. And they, they, this is actually, in our research, we often see a core concern of people, uh, a kind of a, a fear of um, dependency. But connecting those things then explicitly to foreign policy, security policy is quite difficult because both that sort of international economic policy and foreign and security policy are two things that for many people are quite distant and seen as, as a more elite topic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this is a common theme of our discussions, actually, is that some of this seems very far away to people when it's discussed in those terms, but also it seems far away from their capacity to influence. Is that something that comes up in your discussions with people? Absolutely. So we, we do know that people, when they feel most engaged politically, uh, when they have a feeling of efficacy, when they have that feeling that even their vote matters, but far beyond this, that they're being listened to, that someone is interested even in what they're saying, even if politics goes against their, their preferences. And when we talk about both kind of big economic policy and security and foreign policy, people do feel very, very far removed from it. And arguably for a good reason. It's, it's the sort of politics that is often discussed in a way where many political parties don't feel there's a need to reach out to the public because it is so complicated. Um, so it kind of makes sense, I think, that people feel removed, but it doesn't mean that they don't care about it. I think that's very important. Right, that's it. So where, where does the rubber meet the road on this for ordinary people around Germany? 
where does it hit them? Where does it enter their lives? We've seen obviously people that people were able to connect um, the war in Ukraine with an increase in prices and so on. So that is something that's that's fairly obvious. People notice it. But we also notice that people experience it through kind of more secondary effects, a kind of general fear for safety, security, although they're not directly affected. But there's a second level, and that is where people actually also care about Germany, the country as a whole, and its ability to act. So that's the thing that sounds more removed. But actually, we do see in quite a lot of survey research as well, that people do care about Germany's capacity on the international stage. Right. So this is it. I mean, that double concern for, okay, what makes my life more expensive, but also what affects my job or the lack of job, whatever it may be, meets that more generalized concern. And I think this is something we've seen consistently in the period since Russia's full-scale invasion, that everyday Germans are concerned about these bigger issues. Yet sometimes the political elite tell us the opposite story. And that, that makes me think, and I'm interested to know your opinion on this, is that to do with how helpless political elites have portrayed themselves as being over the last 20 years in the face of you know, globalized economic forces, large corporations, as you mentioned before, and the sort of return of, of great powers in world politics? Do you think those things are, are connected? I think from a kind of public perspective, they are, but there are two dominant things that I would say play a big role. The first one is, is that in a sense, politics has often portrayed itself as relatively helpless, right? We remember that there is no alternative following the financial crisis and the Eurozone crisis, this kind of idea that effectively global economic forces kind of slosh around countries and they just have to respond to it. Whereas actually political leaders, especially in Germany and the EU, have done quite extensive work, um, for example, regarding data protection when we think about social media firms, right? But politics sometimes doesn't communicate this, doesn't engage on these issues because they do seem removed. The second thing is that I think for quite a lot of people in this regard, there is also a feeling that their concerns aren't being heard. Um, and, and one has to be careful because this isn't an excuse. People actually care a lot about, for example, um, that German politics follows certain value structures and so on. This, this is important. It's not just about kind of the economic outputs from it. But there's often that feeling that there isn't an ability to articulate some of these points. Maybe sometimes political leaders making themselves not look as powerful as they actually are. Yeah, absolutely, which suits a certain kind of con continuity politics that we saw um, under Angela Merkel and then now into the Schultz chancery period. Aaron, that, that rather relates to a lot of things we talk about on this show, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's um, this whole idea of there is no alternative, alternativlos, um, which often comes from delaying decisions constantly and, you know, somehow pretending that as the world's fourth largest economy, you have no influence, which of course is ridiculous. Um, but I think Germans do know on some level that their country is influential and that um, there, you know, is more that can be can be done here. But in terms of what you've actually found, um, what what are the top of mind issues that um, Germans actually do care about? So when it comes to values, what are the ones that come top um, of, of the survey? So people are very responsive to the current news cycle effectively. Right. Um, so that's really important because we don't have an established kind of discourse that always sets the same topic um, kind of front and center when we talk about it. So Basically, a lot about foreign politics is looked at through that, that kind of current lens. 
we see that people do care about kind of fundamental, the sort of values that they like in the Grundgesetz, the German basic law, it's kind of those you know, human dignity and so on. But what does that mean in practice? And this is where the public um, also wants to have its cake, eat it, um, and also not get fat from it. It's kind of, there's a bit of everything there. It's understandable because if you don't think about these things systematically, yes, you want obviously that we're good, so to speak, in the world, don't do harm. So that's kind of the base. But second of all, it should follow. People also say foreign policy should very much be in Germans' interests in the first place. So it's very important. The German government is here to primarily look after ourselves. But third of all, yeah, but we don't want Germany on the international state to have a super leading role. A lot of Germans reject the idea of Germany taking a leadership role internationally unless it's through the EU. So if you ask outright, should Germany be a leader in international security policy, military policy? A lot of Germans say no. If you ask, should the European Union have kind of a a shared army, for example, actually about 50% of Germans say yes. So there are a lot of contradictions. And that makes sense because there isn't a coherent public narrative that doesn't just follow the news cycle. That's so interesting. Yeah. And that really cuts to the chase of a lot of the, the dilemmas of German foreign policy in recent years. Many would argue that Germany has exercised leadership in denial through its EU role and actually has been a leader in many ways. It has been a leader in developing dependency on Russian gas. It has been a leader in developing corporate dependencies in China. And so this is the kind of leadership that Germans have seen, even though it's not an overt or avowed leadership. And I'll come back in a second, perhaps, to talking about China and how people see uh, see that. Um, but then also, of course, to be to lead, you have to be followed. And this is what some of Germany's allies are a bit less keen on at the moment. There's not so much uh, followership or teamship happening there. We often actually see several polls done in Germany about exactly these kinds of questions that have very, very different results, depending on what you're asking. And we have inconsistency in those results. How has your methodology um, addressed these questions, particularly with um, the whole problem that you have uh, so wonderfully said, Germans want to have their cake, eat it and not get fat from it. But that doesn't square with the reality that there are trade-offs to choose in these kinds of questions. So how do you handle the whole issue? Issue of trade-offs. When we do survey research, uh, you can ask people something very directly, but people uh, will give you an answer. Um, but you might ask a contrary question and people will give you an answer that contradicts it quite often. I'll give you an example in our research. We ask um, about, you know, do people think that we should increase uh, public debt or reduce it? Should it be a priority to reduce debt? And the majority of Germans says yes. I ask another question where I say, should we, should the state borrow money if it's used for investment in, you know, important things? And the majority says yes. And, and you get a lot of people who say yes to both intuitively. And that is because people don't have the practice to talk about the systemically relevant issues. It's, it's not that sort of level where a lot of politicians engage people, basically, in thinking about these things as, as the higher level systemic issues. The second point is not everything can be answered through a survey. When you do a survey, you need to enable for those inconsistencies to come out. We get a lot of single questions that then get interpreted as that is the definitive view of the public. Um, but again, you know, ask the opposite question and see who agrees with that as well. So we do quite a lot where we look at those sorts of things or ask people explicitly, would you make that trade-off? And, and you ask actually about it. So there is more that can be done than that headline-grabbing question that we often get. 
The second thing, however, is to acknowledge that not everything can be done through surveys and quantitative methods. So we do quite a lot of qualitative works where we work through small group interviews, focus groups, and so on with people, and actually go into the discourses. That's where we see quite a lot of coming out of the nuances, the worries that people have, but also the concerns that they, they share that go beyond that kind of immediate circle. And so what trade-offs, saying all of this, what trade-offs are people willing to make? The important thing is people are willing um, for Germany to uh, invest and and spend money on this. We've seen this in the context um, of uh, Ukraine, for example, additional expenditure into armament and so on also to be sent to Ukraine. But that was a process. People followed the political debate. And that is a really important thing. Political leadership really, really matters in increasing that salience and that willingness. But the important thing is people are willing to make the trade-off of, for example, giving up, um, in this case, if I talk about economic resources of the German state, they are willing to do this if they understand what the outcome is going to be. People need to see basically why this is done. This sounds really simplistic, but the argument it's the right thing to do isn't good enough, basically, if you want to carry the public along. You need to present a narrative. If that is, for example, we want to reduce our dependency, which is something a lot of people don't like of Chinese and Russian imports, for example, that makes sense to people. It also seems it's more likely that people are willing to put effort into this if German action is part of broader European action. It really, really increases the salience, except for a minority of the public that obviously disagrees with European cooperation. That's so interesting and echoes many of the discussions we've had across the different fields that we talk about on this show. And actually trying to bring some of those themes together, taking this integrated approach is a key aspect of what we try and do on Berlin Side Out, as well as with the action group Zeitenwender that I run here at the DGAP. And Part of that is getting politicians to understand how to communicate across these fields, how to join those dots, how to make the links between these things. As you say, take the extra step and explain why you need to do something, why it's in your interest as well as why it resonates with your values in order to have something of a more strategic approach, actually. We heard Ben Hodges saying this even over the weekend um, when we were in Prague with a group of experts that the German leadership needs to show up. And it needs to start talking to the population like that adults and explaining through all these things and explaining that, yes, there are costs to pay for this, but here's why it's worth it. And as you said um, before, you have found that the public is willing to uh, invest, uh, for example, to reduce this kind of dependency. Um, And that when you put it exactly in those terms, that it's dependency uh, rather than simply a a moral uh, imperative, what sort of investments is the German public willing to make? And is it willing to pay what we like to call on this show a national security premium? That is, is that you might be willing to pay perhaps a higher upfront cost, at least initially, uh, to uh, do more investment at home to trade more with allies and, and like-minded partners to reduce these dependencies on authoritarian regimes. What I mean by this in practice here is, is when we've, when we've talked with people about these issues in, in kind of qualitative settings as well, what we do see is that people are really concerned if they don't understand how it affects them. They see basically international action that Germany might be taking. They see their, their first expectation is, yeah, this might be good, it might give us security, but it will make things more expensive for us, it will you know, change certain job structures and so on. So you do need to have that feedback loop back to the public, basically, and say, how is this going to affect your lives? 
So I think, yes, saying there might be an upfront cost can be okay, but it's not going to be enough to argue this is going to be good for our trade and national security. It needs to have that feedback loop into, and this is what it's going to do to your lives positively as well. Is there something to be said then perhaps for um, being perhaps a bit more clear with the public in terms of the costs that uh, of things that might seem cheap now, but actually uh, end up being very expensive? You're going to so. talk about our favorite Moscow. Oh, here, absolutely. Yeah. Because the, it, Rush, because Russian gas, buy once, pay twice. Because there's so many good example, you know, reasons to talk about this. Russian gas seemed so cheap, and then we spent 200 billion euros to, you know, get through uh, a single winter. So it actually did become very expensive in the end if it didn't seem like that originally. Um, so this whole idea of, you know, there's a cost to not doing something. There's a cost to not paying this premium in in the form of risks that might come to fruition. Uh, should we be a bit more level um, with the public? About about these kinds of choices? I think you are absolutely right. The big problem is, of course, that politicians often don't like to do the long-term story, right? Because it, it makes things more difficult for them in the short term themselves, right? No one likes to communicate the difficult message up front. But I do agree that it is essential if you want to do anything major that takes the public along in the long term. And that is fundamentally um, because... As said, if, if you don't engage the public in a conversation about looking at some of those systemic questions, you then later on can't sell them policies um, that, that require systematic thinking, right? Don't say in general, for example, addressing things through global climate cooperation, it's going to create jobs. That's too abstract. Be concrete in what, what can be done. And bring it back to the local level. What do some of those things mean for you kind of in your lived environment? So that is that is the important step. But yes, it's a big additional effort that politicians aren't good at both on economic and international politics questions so far is having these discussions at that systemic level. What you mentioned just then, that people need to feel the connection to where they live to how they live, to who they are. But that's precisely been one of the problems in many Western democracies in recent years is there's a good number of people who don't feel that connection from the political elite at all. What are the reasons perhaps to disconnect how people feel disenfranchised and um, what political effects that might have had, be that in the rise of alternative parties, alternative for Deutschland, for example. It's not just in Germany, but in Germany, a really particular challenge at the moment. It's uh, We do know that people feel... Um, to some extent, less efficacy, feel that their vote matters less when they don't see as big a difference amongst the mainstream parties. And several years of grand coalitions in Germany didn't help that. This is this has been well established by others as well, right? If, if basically the center-left, center-right work together all the time, you become skeptical about basically how much choice there is within the system. Half of the voters of the Alternative for Deutschland clearly have far-right extreme attitudes. We haven't seen an overall increase in those attitudes very much, but it's people who've basically now found that um, outlet. So half of their voters are. The other half, um, actually, it, a lot of it comes still from that disappointment with existing party. It's that choice set. The second point, however, is uh, one about, and it again has to do how parties speak with publics and through publics. Um, we still see in Germany a tendency, not by all political parties and all politicians, it's, I, I don't want to put everyone together here, but a focus on saying basically anything 
that um, is an alternative to representative democracy is basically a challenge to representative democracy. And that's other countries are further in that regard. Now, Germany is now having a big citizens assembly set up by the Bundestag and it's going to focus on nutrition. Um, now, don't get me wrong, nutrition is very important, but you know, you. The, well, the especially if you want to have your cake, eat it, and not get Absolutely. fat, Absolutely. Right? <laughs> <laughs> 3D cakeism. We bring it to you first on Berlin Inside Out. Absolutely. I mean, the, you know, but the, the Brits don't necessarily have a monopoly on cakeism. <laughs> <laughs> there is a problem in that actually a lot of publics have a desire to engage in other ways. And some of that engagement is how people find a way into politics. So one of our research projects looks at people with migration biographies, which is over a quarter of people in Germany, right? So a big group of people. And they're, they're very politically engaged, but not all through political parties. And that is partially because there's a big group who said, I've tried to become engaged with them, experienced racism, and that's why I you know, stopped doing that. Those people haven't become politically unengaged, but they work through civil society organizations and other groups, right? And that's okay if political parties find the intersection with those civil society organizations. There's no contradict. Research shows very clearly most people who engage in issue-based politics are more likely to also engage with representative democracy. Now, we've seen a shift in the last 10, 15 years that actually political parties try to do outreach, and some do it better than others. But there's still a lot of potential to bring together the institutions of established representative democracy with those other forms of civic political engagement. Um, so that is one of the things, I think, where we really have a big, big gap um, also for loads of other communities. Again, it speaks to this integrating function that's needed to play, actually bringing those activities up, which can often be extremely diverse from civil society actors, some of which tend to be single issue actors quite often as well, and putting those into the kind of guiding frameworks to make sense of the world for people as well as for politicians and to try and then actually hone that forward into things like a national security strategy. I mean, we, we know that the German national security strategy is not really a strategy, uh, the one that's been published, and has a lot of everything in it, which reflects, I think, think that same problem is that there hasn't been that willing to, willingness to prioritize, to channel, to cut out, because prioritization, of course, is never really about getting rid of the unuseful or uninteresting things. It's about getting rid of some interesting and useful things, but nonetheless that aren't the most important. And we haven't seen that function really being played. To what extent are those issues, be it geopolitics through migration, for example, or be it geoeconomics through feeling that but the policy on trade is more for Volkswagen than for me. Could you just speak a little to how people's disenfranchisement and disconnection reflects those issues? One of the really important points is that people very quickly make issue linkages because they, when, when it's something really abstract and far removed from them, they try to make sense of it through something they understand. Right? That, that makes, makes sense. So for a lot of people, when we talk about global economic flows and so on, they connect it to, okay, I understand my prices have gone up during COVID. I couldn't access certain goods and so on. So those dependencies are understood. But it means also that the topics they find important otherwise still come through. So when you, when you ask people about what is the most important goal of German foreign policy, there are quite a lot of people who pick um, climate action um, as actually one of, of the primary goals. Now, in the current discourse, however, a lot of people pick the issue of migration as well. But so this shows two things. One is that issue linkage point. And this is one when, when I talk to, to politicians and civil society actors, I always say, think about those issue linkages 
uh, very, very strongly because you can engage people on things otherwise not. They, you might think you can't engage them on. We did a big study in several countries where we asked um, about kind of action on, on climate change. And one of the questions was, how do you deal with emissions from food and meat production? And what was really interesting to us in Germany, there was a majority of people said the best thing you can do about this is to ban um, basically ma mass incarceration of animals, mass animal farming. And we were like, what? Um, and this was in a time where there was a meat scandal and so on. So people made issue linkages and suddenly there was an in into a topic that people otherwise jump or oh, don't increase the cost of my schnitzel. Right. But it's but suddenly people talked about it because they connected it to health, animal welfare and so on. So issue linkage is that one side. The second point, though, um, when we talk about the, the priorities that people have is that salience point. The news cycle really, really determines this even more than when we talk about general political priorities in foreign policy, because it is so far removed. If you see a lot of things, and I'm talking really placatively here, but if you see a lot of news broadcasts that are militarized, because you see actually military action like we've seen in the last two years, people think more in those terms than they did before. If you see a lot of reports about migration, you think about those terms more. If you feel any of this in your personal life as well, because there are debates in your community about refugees, you think about it more. But that will change if foreign policy is discussed differently as well. So there is a salience. So some things, the things that people can connect to, the issue linkages, the topics they find important anyways, are the things they connect to. And the second point is the things that are particularly salient in their own life or the news cycle. So there is a malleability to it, where again, political leadership can play a really important role and media leadership, of course. One of the consistent themes uh, on this podcast um, for those who regularly listen to our show is that German leadership may think they're representing public concerns or they use public concern um, sort of as an excuse not to act. And we've certainly seen that um, on Ukrainian weapons deliveries. That's one of the biggest examples, but certainly not the only one. Um, but in fact, the public uh, runs ahead of leadership often on questions of values. Um, and we've seen that a lot since February 2022. And we see that here, too, on this whole question of geoeconomics, uh, trade-offs, uh, reducing dependency, all of this. What message would you send to German politicians about what the public is actually trying to tell them on these questions? I think the most important thing is that politicians, politicians should not make the mistake to not act because publics show concerns about certain things. So just because publics, for example, show concern about military aid doesn't mean that publics A, don't want to help, B, aren't willing to spend, or C, aren't willing to consider military aid. These are based on survey questions that formulate something in a very, very specific way. Do you right now think this and this should be done or not? Now, what we need is a conversation. If people don't normally think about it, it doesn't mean they're willing to consider it. And that's where we've seen, seen quite big shifts, right, in the concrete polls about weapons for Ukraine. Things shifted quite considerably in between as a conversation was emerging. Public's views are more complex. It is absolutely conceivable that someone will say, on the one hand, I have concerns about what weapons do that we send to other places, but also... I am concerned about how Ukraine is faring in this war, and I'm concerned what that means for, yes, German budgets and so on, but I'm also interested in helping. Um, 
none of that is contradictory. The message to politicians should be engage people in that conversation to see how you can bring concerns and the, the need to act um, together. And actually, you'll find that for the majority of the population, if we ignore kind of the most extreme views, you will actually be able to find common ground on a lot of those issues. Including geoeconomic issues and to including these questions of, of reducing dependence, yes? Absolutely, because on, on those points, a lot of the concerns actually of political elites and the public are not that dissimilar. When, when you talk to most people, and we see this in, in a variety of surveys and polls, but also in qualitative work, when you talk to most people, they see the benefits of international trade. Very few people want a totally isolation in his policy. But there are concerns about the degree of dependencies, especially from countries that they don't feel share the values with, that they see as a threat. Now, so that is kind of, in a sense, I mean, I simplify terribly, but that's not dissimilar to the position of the government as a starting point. So what is there is a space for conversation. The problem is if you now only take a public figure, basically where people say, should we be isolationist? No. Should we basically go on full confrontation with China? Also no. Um, basically, if you do any of this, you're going to get very, very extreme kind of views. What we need to look at is the whole array of public opinion, probably go beyond a survey to understand what, what publics mean. There's more engagement that's needed. I think that's really important. That's the role of leadership. It's about communication, it's about persuasion, and it's about listening. And all of that is you know, fundamental political acts that uh, we could see more of productively in the German debate. Jan Eichhorn, once again, thank you so much. So as our chat with Jan might suggest, there's a lot of nuance in the German public's view on how the country should act on the world stage, whether it's to support Ukraine or to reduce German dependence on authoritarians. But that's not necessarily inconsistent with the fact that the public is interested in Germany standing up for its values. How does the country do that? Not just in its trade model, but in its overall grand strategy. That's something we're looking forward to getting into coming up on Berlin Side Out in our report back from our special high-level events in Berlin and Prague. That's all for this episode. Thank you very much to Jan Eichhorn, our team at the Council, and our producer Hendrik Werner, and see you next week. Until then, auf Wiedersehen and tschüss.